You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favour has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, Neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again? and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? 
Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, well, good morning. Uh, my name's Mike. Uh, if I haven't met you, it's my joy to serve as one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. Um, well, we, um, we love community as a church. Um, and I sent an email out this week saying that, exactly that. As a church, we love community. You know, before I joined uh, the team here, I asked um, about 10 of you, uh, what do you love most about church? And it was um, as if you'd kind of, you know, conspired to kind of give the same answer. You all said community, and in particular, gospel community. I'm like, man, you're all saying the same thing. What's this kind of cult I've joined? Um, no, it's not a cult. Um, it's definitely not a cult. How do you know something's not a cult? Well, when the leader gets to the front and says, this is not a cult. <laughs> um, welcome to City on a Hill. <laughs> great to have you here. Um, but community, uh, it's, a, it's a great blessing from God. Uh, that God, the God who's in eternal community, uh, Father, Spirit, Son, has made people in His own image to be in community uh, with each other and with Him. Uh, and yet every community, uh, including Christian communities, are not perfect. Uh, last week we looked at the question, how do we rebuild our community in the face of uncertainty? Uh, and today, as we continue our rebuild series, looking at, at Ezra, and we'll wrap up Ezra today, I want us to look at the question, how do we deal with sin in the community? How do we deal with sin in our community? Not because we're going through anything in particular right now, but on one level, there will always be sin in our community. Uh, sometimes it'll be going under the radar and we won't even notice it. Uh, it'll be very subtle, but sometimes it'll be more pervasive, more obvious, more evident. Uh, as we look at today's passage in Ezra, we'll see for the first time in the book, obvious sin, rebellion, falling short of God's glory, of the standards that he has set for his community, the people of God. Uh, see, throughout the book of Ezra, so far, things have been tracking pretty well. Uh, just to do a quick uh, recap uh, of where we're up to, it's about the year 498 BC. God desires, uh, this is his big plan, he desires that his people will be living in his place, which is Jerusalem, uh, under his rule for his purposes, to love him and enjoy him forever. And at the start of Ezra, we see none of that's happening uh, because God's people, they've been disobedient and they're living for their own purposes. And so they've been judged and they've been sent um, exiled away to Babylon, hence kicked out of his place, not living for his purposes um, or you know, with him in his presence. But we see God's grace and kindness. Ezra 1.1, 1, 1, uh, King Cyrus the Great, he, he sends, sets a decree that allows God's people to come back and rebuild uh, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem so that God and his people can reconcile. Uh, last week we saw in Ezra 7 and 8, God sends Ezra uh, to rebuild the community centered around his word. He's a man who's devoted to the word of God, who studies it, obeys it, and teaches it. And God is using him to rebuild the community. And we saw the hand of the Lord is upon Ezra and upon his people. Things seem to be going pretty well. They're improving. They're on the up. And yet it's important uh, that when we get to the Bible, when we look at people like Ezra, we don't oversimplify. 
You know, we, we love heroes. Uh, we love uh, watching a movie and trying to see, okay, who's the good guy? Who can I identify with? We love heroes that kind of go and, and they kind of, you know, kick the butts of the evil ones, the villains. Uh, we love that, don't we? You know, when I read um, the Bible to my daughter, uh, you know, she's three and a half, and she's like, Dad, is that guy naughty or is he, is he good? <laughs> um, the answer is always complex. When we meet Ezra, again, the answer is complex. Uh, Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, writing about the Russian gulags he, under Stalin, he says this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. The line through good and evil cuts through the heart of each one of us. Isn't that true? When it comes to our community, we want a simple solution for a complex problem. You know, dealing with sin in the church, wouldn't it be great if we say, hey, all the sinners can just kind of hang outside or sit down the back? But unfortunately, that's all of us. There'd be no one left down the front. That's you and me. We've all got this problem of our heart. We all fail to even live up to our own standards, let alone God's perfect, holy ones. And Ezra is part of God's big story of salvation. He gives us a glimpse and a model of how we, as the people of God, can deal with sin. And we need to read this in particularly in light of Jesus. We can't just copy and paste what Ezra does. We need to read it in light of the coming king, Jesus. And so as we open up to Ezra chapter 9, open it up uh, if you don't have it with you. If you don't own a Bible, I'd love to give you one. We've got some on our info desk just out as you walked in. love to help you read it and put it in your hands. We're going to see three things um, about dealing with sin. Uh, they're easy to say. Uh, like the three R's of education. Two don't even start with R. These all do start with R. Uh, they're easy to say, but it's complex because we're dealing with a complex, messy topic. The first thing we're going to see is the realization of sin. The realization of sin. Come with me to Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the people, sorry, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. What's happened? Well, Ezra, uh, he'd been in Jerusalem for just five months, and some of the leaders had approached him with a problem. What's going on? It's a bad problem, it's a serious problem. He's describing it as an abomination. Acts of evil are being committed by the people of God. What's happening? We'll keep reading with me in verse 1. What's happening? Well, the people, they have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Vegemites, the Moabites, just seeing if you're listening, the Egyptians and the Amorites. Uh, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed themselves with the peoples of the land. What's the issue? Well, the people of God are marrying foreign women, people that aren't part of Israel, part, part of Judah. Now, it's not everyone. Uh, we can kind of read this, do the maths if we read through chapter 10. A bit over 100 men out of, uh, of 50,000. Like, it's not everyone, but it's a, it's a chunk of people. So what's the big deal? Like, is God being racist here? Uh, we see, have a look in verse 2. The word 
race is even used. The, the Jews, they're a holy race. Uh, they've taken daughters from other races. You know, sadly, uh, people uh, over the history of the church have taken passages like this, twisted them, and used them to justify things like racism and segregation. And let me just make a couple of comments here. Uh, firstly, uh, the word in Hebrew, zerah, it's, uh, it's, it's translated here as the word race, but probably in our cultural context, that's probably not the best word to use, given the kind of loading, the heat that that word has. Uh, a word, the same word is often used throughout the Bible to talk about seed or offspring. Uh, if you think back to Genesis uh, chapter 12, uh, Abraham, he gets the promises uh, from God that your Zerah, that your offspring uh, will be many, that the, that the whole world will be blessed uh, through your Zerah, through your seed, through your lineage. See, God's plan for the nation of Israel, the people of God, are to be a light to the world. Uh, throughout the Bible, uh, including the Old Testament, God's plan has, to be, has been for the nations, for the world. Israel meant to live differently and to show people what it's like to be living under God's blessing with Him in His presence. And the world were meant to look on and see, wow, you guys are different. Wow, your God must be incredible. How awesome is He? However, time and time again, they stuffed up. Uh, mostly, Israel just copied what other people were doing and worshipping what they were worshipping. But here we see it's also the priests, the Levites, the, the leaders in particular who are doing it. So what's the specific issue? Where, where do they go wrong? What, what rule do they violate? Uh, if you come back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you've got a Bible, it's the fifth book of the Bible between Judges, Leviticus, uh, Judges and Numbers, sorry. Uh, come back to, with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And this is what, um, this is the rule. This is what, where they went wrong. Uh, verse, here we go. We go verse 1. Um, now the context here is God's people, uh, they're getting the law from Moses and they're about to enter the promised land. Now it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters or to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. Here we see God's Lord outlined 900 years or so before Ezra. Uh, the command is when you go into the promised land, don't sleep around with other women. Don't give your sons over to the other daughters of these other nations that are there. Why? Because... Uh, that will lead them astray. Uh, that will lead them to be worshipping other gods instead of me, the one true God. The issue here is not race. Um, you know, in fact, all those um, hard-to-pronounce names um, that we see the list in Deuteronomy, that, that sounds familiar. It's pretty similar to the list in Ezra. And in fact, um, Ezra's making a, there's a point here that's been made in Ezra um, that's really meant to think us, uh, take us back to Deuteronomy. Half those Half those names in Ezra 
weren't actually uh, groups that still existed. In fact, the Perizzites, the Hittites, they were a real people back in Moses' day, but by Ezra's day, they didn't really exist anymore. So there wasn't a real issue for them to kind of go and marry a bunch of Hittites because they weren't there. Uh, We're meant to see this pattern here, that God's people are returning to their sinful ways. The issue isn't skin color or culture, it's heart. That's where God God cares about the most, your heart. Uh, In 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, when talking about a king, uh, uh, it says that for man, God says, for man sees the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. You know, we come to passages like this, we we jump to race, we jump to skin color or culture. Um, Israel, it's not that Israel went to marry from other cultures or colors, it's about the heart. Back in Ezra chapter 9, come with me back to Ezra chapter 9. This is the issue we see. Verse 2. And in this faithlessness, that's the issue. In this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. That's the issue. Faithlessness. Not having trust or faith in God. You know, marrying foreign women was wrong because it led God's people to worship foreign gods. 400 years prior to uh, Ezra's time, you might remember this if you're with us last year during our Coming King series, or if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, uh, God's people were in the promised land. Things were going well. Uh, This is under Solomon. Uh, And um, the economy was going well, that the temple had been built. Um, David, the greatest king of Israel, he just ruled before. Uh, Things were going well. Solomon was a wise king. People were coming to kind of hear him speak. And yet Solomon was warned not to take foreign wives for himself. And he did. And what happened? Well, he started worshipping their gods. Uh, This led to God's judgment. The kingdom was split into uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And we see the demise of God's people. 400 years have passed since then. God's people are back in the land. Things are looking promising. And yet, here we see Ezra seeing the people of God commit the same old problem. The same sin again and again. Their hearts being led astray. Now that's back then. Is that just kind of a problem for you know, Israel way back then? I think there's actually an important principle for us today as we think about our relationships Marriage, it's a beautiful thing. It's a gift from God. And marriage is the closest thing we have uh, to God's love for the church. It's meant to be an intimate, exclusive relationship where two become one. We're united in the same way that God's people, the church, are united with Him. God takes marriage seriously. If you're married, it's the second most important relationship that you have uh, before God. And so your spouse will either help you follow Jesus or turn you away. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're not married and you want to get married one day, you're thinking about dating, can I just say this? Don't just date a Christian. If you just date a Christian, your standards are too low. What do I mean by that? You know, you might um, be going on a dating app and you might kind of, you know, flick through your filter, hit the filter, say, all right, I only want to look at Christians, right? You know, maybe even you're going on a Christian dating app. Or maybe even worse, you, know, you say, oh, look, they're not a Christian, but they believe in God. They're not a Christian, but you know, they're open to coming to church or they're open to sort of talking about it. No, run away from that. Date someone, pursue someone, and ultimately marry someone that isn't just a Christian, 
isn't just open to things, but that will love Jesus more than you, that will help you fight sin, who will encourage you to be in the Word, encourage you to be here, encourage you to be living a life of obedience for Jesus. To the men, to the blokes in particular, look around the room. There's some great godly girls here. I mean that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And hey, let's not be too intense. Um, you know, I heard someone say, this is great wisdom, coffee isn't marriage. Coffee isn't marriage, you know. Um, you know, you aren't bound to someone after one cappuccino, okay? So let's just, you know, clear the air here. But friends, if we're looking, I know some of you are, if we're looking, let's be looking in the right places. You know, I hear someone say, oh, if I date, if I date someone who's a Christian, you know, we get married, what about the kids? You know, that's the problem. Yeah, you're right. That, that is a problem. Like, you know, do I raise them as Christians, baptism, like church, like all their good questions. But taking a step back, it's not just the kids that that's an issue for. It's an issue for you. Uh, Kathy Keller, uh, Tim Keller's wife, uh, she's been in ministry for 40 years. She, she wrote an article about this, uh, and she talks about couples that she's seen that she describes are unequal. And she's not just talking about Christian, non-Christian. She's talking about, you know, Christians, those who take Jesus seriously and those who maybe are sort of tick-a-box Christians. She says... Um, she says after many decades of ministry, there's three outcomes she's seen time and time again. You know, firstly, Jesus gets pushed to the margins. You know, someone's on board with Jesus, someone's not. Jesus, he gets sidelined as that relationship keeps going forward. Second thing she sees is maybe the person here, they, they hold on to Jesus and, and they want to keep living for Jesus you know, faithfully in that relationship. And yet what happens is the other person gets pushed to the margins. That's not a healthy relationship. Thirdly, what happens is you've got these two people that are disagreeing on something profound, something that's the most profound thing that you can disagree on, what your life is centered around, who you worship, um, and what happens? Well, the relationship is unsustainable. It ends up in separation or breakup or divorce. None of those things are a healthy relationship. You know what you might be thinking? Yes, by God's grace, yes, sometimes the kind of flirt to convert thing does seem to work, but... Friends, it's dangerous. Why would you risk that? In my experience, I've been around for youth, young adults in churches 15, 20 years. The number one reason I've seen people walk or drift away, is probably a better word, drift away from the things of God is through a relationship, through dating or marriage. About someone that's life isn't centered around Jesus, even if they might use those words Christian. You know, if you're, um, what about if you're already married to someone who's not a follower of Jesus? And I know that's the case for some of you. We'll come back to that uh, in a moment. But if you're single, you're probably thinking, oh, here we go. Here's another married guy. And he's got kids kind of going on a rant. You know, he doesn't understand my situation. Um, you know, right, I, I don't. I can't fully empathize with your situation. I know it's hard, but I can't fully relate to that context. But I know one who is. Jesus, he stayed single. Jesus, he, the Bible says in Hebrews, that he was tempted in every way just as we are. Presumably, if that's every way just as we are, if, uh, that means sexually as well. He was tempted to, to even pursue a wife on one level. Now, he didn't sin. Temptation is different to sin. Let me just clear that up. That's a complex thing. Don't have time to talk about that today. But Jesus stayed single, yet perhaps he had a desire to be married. Uh, Jesus, he knows it's hard. And yet, he knows it's worth it. And he knows he wants a relationship with you. 
Jesus says that there's a blessing to those who remain single for the sake of his kingdom. Now, the Apostle Paul, talking about this in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Singleness is a gift. It's a gift. And church, I'm so encouraged by so many of you who are using that gift for God's glory. That extra time, extra energy, extra headspace for the kingdom. Keep going in that. Such a blessing to have you serving Jesus, using that gift for his church. So just to clarify, uh, we read Ezra, it says, don't date foreign wives. Friends, we have permission to, to, to marry, to you know, encourage you, marry someone from Japan, Jamaica, from Jindalee even. You know, but may they be on about Jesus. All right, that's a long aside. Putting aside, let's come back to Ezra. Come back with me. Turn to chapter 10. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1. Let's have a, look, have a look at how the people recognize their sin. Uh, how do we deal with sin in the church? Point 1, recognize their sin. Verse 1, chapter 10. When Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people of God wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, saying, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. What happens? Well, collectively, they come together and they, they call out their sin. They confess their sin to each other and before God, um, Shechaniah says, we've broken our faith before God. That's what they've done. That's the most important thing. They're violated against their creator. That's what sin is. Uh, first and foremost, even if sin means we hurt each other, the biggest issue is actually we're hurting God. It's against Him. Church, how are we going at recognizing our sin? Do you have people in your life uh, that will call you out, confront and challenge you? And church, do you confess specific sins to God? Or are there sort of certain sins that you're kind of ashamed of and you sort of just kind of pray a general prayer because you don't even want to kind of recall some of the things that you've done? Friends, God knows everything. He sees everything. You can't hide from Him. What about each other? Uh, you know, how do you go at even being vulnerable, open, confessing with each other? Uh, in gospel community, you know, when we kind of split up, you know, guys, girls, for, for prayer, you share prayer points. Are you kind of like, yeah, pray for my friend's neighbor's cat? I mean, yeah, sure, your neighbor's your friend's neighbor's cat, they don't matter. But no, do you talk about, hey, I looked at porn this week, my heart's grieved. Uh, pray for me. I'm, I'm struggling with gossip in the workplace. Uh, I'm just really feeling jealous of that person for what they have and I want. My heart is really um, torn. Are they the sort of things that we share in front of, not everyone, but a small, close, trusted community? We need each other to help each other, to help us point out blind spots, recognize each other's faults. All right, the first point, we've seen the recognition of sin. We confess our sin, first and foremost, before God, realizing He is holy. How does Ezra respond to the sin of his people? Uh, come with me uh, back in chapter 9, verse 3. In the recognition of sin, here we see repentance of sin. Repentance of sin. What happens in verse 3? As soon as I heard this, as I heard what's going on, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Wow. 
It's a graphic scene. Uh, he rips his clothes, rips his hair out, uh, and even rips his beard. Now, as a bearded man, all I can say is, ouch. <laughs> uh, a few years ago, um, this is the longest my beard has ever been. Uh, a few years ago, I, I, I grew my beard out for a youth camp. I think I've still got a pick. Um, and I dyed it black because I was, there you go, if you can see it, I dyed it black. That's my beard, it's dyed black, because uh, I was Captain Blackbeard <laughs> on, on a youth camp. And, uh, you know, a lot of kids, they thought it was fake. Uh, they started yanking at it, trying to pull it out. Uh, I'm sure Ezra's beard was at least as impressive as that bad boy. Um, and so ripping it out, man, not fun. But Ezra's reaction, it's serious because God is serious about sin. All right, let's get rid of that pick. Let's keep reading verse 4. <laughs> let's keep reading verse 4. Um, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, uh, because of the faithlessness of the return exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. In response, we see Ezra, in response to sin, he sits there. In despair, closed, hair ripped, he can't even eat. Uh, The community, they gather around and eventually he gets up and just falls on his knees. He's a man who takes sin seriously. And listen to his prayer. Uh, Come with me, verse 6, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of this land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Friends, when dealing with confession, we can't just... So we're dealing with sin... Uh, We can't just merely stay at at confession that's just words. It's much deeper. Hopefully you see that as we see Ezra's confession, as we see his repentance. Uh, Sam Storms, he writes a really helpful article about repentance. And he says this, uh, Genuine repentance begins, but by no means ends with a heartfelt conviction of sin. It begins with an unequivocal, unequivocal, heart-rendering recognition of having defiled God by embracing what he despises and hating, or at a minimum, being indifferent toward what he loves. It's recognizing who God is and, and, and how you've affected that. Repentance involves him. It involves us before him more than words. Uh, Ezra, he sees God as so holy, so pure, so clean. He can't even lift up. He can't even look up his face towards God. He describes the sin of his people have, has risen above his head. Uh, Ezra's got this big picture view of the people of God. Uh, remember, he was born in Babylon. Uh, and yet uh, he was there because the people of God had sinned in previous generations. Uh, Jerusalem had been destroyed. They'd continued to go down this path of, of rebellion. And so Ezra, he kind of recalls the sin that's kind of existed time and time again, generation after generation. And so let's keep reading down in verse 15. How are the people going to respond? Sorry, come with me, verse 14. Um, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not 
be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant or nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. In our guilt, he says, for none can stand before you because of this. Here we see the justice of God. See, God just can't ignore the sin of his people. He can't just kind of sweep it under the carpet, kind of like maybe like you do before a house inspection. Um, notice, what, what does God, notice what Ezra says. Um, it's not he that sinned. Ezra wasn't the guilty one in this. He wasn't the one that took a, you know, a, a foreign wife. And yet he includes himself in the community. He, he includes himself in the guilty. He says, our sin, what we have done. He's interceding on behalf of his people. This is so countercultural, right? We live in such an individualistic society. You know, we kind of only want to take responsibility for our little bit. Um, what would it look like, though, if we, as the people of God, if we sit on a hill, uh, not just took on our own sin, not just took responsibility for what we had done, but also for others as well? You know, going to the Lord and being like, Lord, you know, our church, we're really struggling in this bringing that before him or maybe something in your gospel community or with some of the, the kind of your crews, smaller groups uh, that you hang out with. And we've stuffed up here, bringing that before God, even if that's not you personally. What would it look like for us to, to take some ownership and responsibility for each other? True repentance. Uh, it's also practical. Sam Storm says again that a change of mind or perspective is of no value if it isn't accompanied by a change of direction a change of life and action. We've already seen uh, some pretty graphic action from Ezra. He's cut his beard and clothes, uh, but there's also something else that they seek to cut out as well. Um, look at how the community deal with the problem. What's the problem? The problem of these foreign marriages. Uh, have a look in chapter 10, verse 3. Shechaniah, um, one of the leaders, he says this, Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God, to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. The community, they get together, and Shechaniah says, we need to take this seriously and put away the wives. Now, what does that mean? Now, it could, it could mean separate. Uh, maybe, like the, the, the Hebrew is a little bit confusing. Maybe it is um, they weren't actually married. They were just kind of cohabitating. That is one possibility. But probably more likely it's divorce. Uh, we see Ezra. He's grieving over the sin, and he can't even bring himself to eat. And so the rest of God's people, that they kind of they come together, and you, as we read through chapter ten, we won't read it all now. But they come together in this public gathering, in the middle of winter. It's raining, it's cold, um, and uh, Ezra he's studied the scriptures. He's a man of the word, and and he says this in verse eleven. He says, "Now, then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of this land and from the foreign wives." 
Uh, and so Ezra, he leads an investigation into this matter uh, that takes a few months. Uh, they get some elders, some leaders of different towns and cities. Uh, and it's this community project to find out who has gone wrong, uh, who has married a foreign woman and who should separate from her. There's four people. They, they complain. Uh, they, they think this is a bit much. Uh, but everyone else is on board. And you know, it takes about three months for this investigation to take uh, place. And the results of the investigation, we can read about the, this list in chapter 10, uh, that there's over 100 blokes uh, who are found guilty. Uh, and, and some have even born children. The very last verse of, um, of, verse of chapter 10 of the book of Ezra. And then I'll, I'll read that for you. Uh, chapter 10, verse 44. All of these married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. And then the pen drops <laughs> and the book ends. Weird place to end a book. There's no real resolution there. So many questions you probably have. So many questions I've got. Like, do these men actually separate? Uh, It says they would, but do they? Presumably they do. Is it divorce? Is it separation? Uh, We're not told. Uh, Maybe it is a separation for a time uh, to give uh, the women a chance to to repent and come to God, possibly. Uh, More likely that they're sent away back to their original families. Uh, You know, often there's children as well. Uh, how does that work? Are these people looked after, kind of single mums with kids? That seems pretty harsh. Um, we don't know all these answers. Uh, the Jews, the people of Judah, they were a minority group back then. So uh, there were a lot of other people, but their families uh, were the Persians and others. They were well-resourced and, and could have perhaps looked after them to make sure they were okay. What's going on here? And the question perhaps you're asking here, I think it's the right question to ask. Is it ever okay to divorce? And if so, what are, the, what are the grounds for divorce? What can we learn about divorce from here? Friends, this is a huge question, a real personal question for many of us, and it's a complex question. I'm not going to pretend to, to answer it in the next two minutes, but, but I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Uh, in Malachi, who's the prophet writing about the same time as Ezra, now we see in Malachi chapter 2, God says that it's, it's been an abomination that Judah were marrying foreign women and worshipping foreign gods. This isn't my plan. And yet, a few verses later, this will come up on the screen. Now, God, he's talking about the covenant of marriage. He says this in verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of their spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. God, he he hates divorce. Yet the people of God in Ezra's time, they, they stooped in their sin. They take a strong reaction. Ezra here, he's almost pick. It's complex, right? But it's almost like he's 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 picking the the lesser of two evils. Uh, he sends away the the hundred foreign foreign women and and their children who were married to these men, uh, because this problem of sin it has the ability to really destroy co- the community. As he studied the word, he's seen it happen generation after generation after generation. Now, has Ezra overreacted? Was this the right thing to do? Maybe. It's complex. Now, this isn't a command from God. We need to be careful to not just say, because it's in the Bible, it's therefore a command from God. You need to um, make sure we discern between the descriptive and the prescriptive. Like, what's this kind of described? What are the things that are happening? And what actually are we called to do and go and do likewise? 
The principle I think we can see here is that drastic sin requires drastic measures. Jesus says that if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. What about your wife? Do you cut her off? What about the women and the children? Perhaps the reason why this process of uh, investigation took three months was to ensure these women were okay, uh, that they had families to go to. We don't know, though. Lots of unknowns here. But if we jump forward to our time and, and look for us, this real question of divorce, we're in a much more privileged position than Ezra. Why? Because we've got access to the whole counsel of God's Word. We've seen God's salvation plan unravel. Jesus, he's come and he's purchased the church as his bride. And he's got a, a few things to say about marriage. Uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 19, the Pharisees, they were the kind of Jewish religious uh, teachers of the day. They came up to Jesus and tested him. Um, and they asked him this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You know, there was a popular teaching going on around Jesus' day. And just before him, there was a guy called Rabbi Hillel. And uh, he was teaching, uh, based off of a verse in Deuteronomy, he was teaching that you could divorce your wife for basically any reason. Any reason. Even uh, if she burnt your dinner. Like that was actually a thing that he was teaching. Um, Jesus reminds the Pharisees and the religious community about the high bar of marriage that God has set. Jesus says this, Have you not read... That he, God who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus reminds um, the Pharisees uh, and us of the purpose of marriage that God has established. Man, woman, together for life, one flesh. And so in response, um, the Pharisees, you know, they're trying to test him. So what do they say? Uh, they say to him, verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So back in Deuteronomy, Moses does allow, not as a command, but as a concession, because Jesus says your hearts are hard, he does allow them to divorce. But Jesus says this is never ideal. But in the complex, broken world we live in, there is a concession that Jesus gives. Sexual immorality as a legitimate grounds for divorce. But if you're married to someone that isn't a Christian, friends, for us today, that's not a grounds for divorce. Stay with them. I know it's hard. 1 Peter calls us to persevere, to let your actions point them to Jesus. Friends, there's heaps more I can say about marriage and divorce. Heaps more we could talk about. I'd love to chat to you, love to pray with you. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a complex question. If you're divorced, though, can I speak to you? This is not the unforgivable sin. You're so welcome here. We love that you're here. Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you. He understands you. And he died for you. He knows what complex relationships are like. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, to be hurt, to be broken, to be lonely, to be isolated. We can come to Jesus as the one who understands even the messiness of our relationships. 
So how do we deal with sin, though, in our community? Well, we've seen the recognition of sin. We've seen repentance of sin. And finally, we see the restoration from sin. Back in Ezra, we see how serious sin is. Uh, Come with me to chapter 10, verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. Uh, Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? I'm sorry, it's chapter 9, sorry. Would you not be angry with us till you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, uh, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. See, no one is righteous before God. No one can stand before a holy God. And yet, God's grace... However far we fall, there's always grace. Despite sin mounting up over their heads, we see in verse 8, for a brief moment, that favor has been shown by the Lord our God to preserve the remnant. Verse 9, God has not forsaken his steadfast love. Verse 13, Ezra says that God has not punished his people less than our iniquities deserve. And and chapter 10, verse 2, Shechaniah says, Even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Friends, that's true for us today. Even now, whatever's going on, there is hope. Uh, I don't know about what the sin uh, that's happening, that has happened in your life, what's happened for you this week, uh, this year, what's happened in your past that you're even ashamed to even recall in your mind. Friends, here's some good news. God sees your sin. He knows it even more than you do. He knows the the, how horrible it is. He knows how destructive it is. He knows how you've walked away from him in so many ways, as I have as well. And yet, here's the good news. God sees that and says there's hope. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been washed clean. Your guilt has been taken away. Nothing you can do can separate you from God's love. Nothing. There's grace. We're so undeserving. God sees everything. We shouldn't even be able to approach him, talk to him given the dirt he has on us. And yet, he welcomes us as his children. And Jesus uh, talks about the, the, the love of God. Uh, in, the, in Luke 15, he tells the, the parable of the, the prodigal son. Uh, remember that? The, there's the younger son who basically wishes his dad was dead. He asks for his inheritance up front. What does he do? He kind of goes, spends it on partying and prostitutes. You know, kind of hits up the valley and he kind of goes away and uh, he runs out of cash. He's like, man, maybe I should um, come back and I can sort of get a job as a kitchen hand back at dad's place. He comes back uh, expecting that maybe he'll kind of come back in there. His dad sees him on the horizon. He runs to him. Son, you're alive. Come back in. Let me kill the fattened calf. Let's have a big party for you. I thought you were dead. You're alive. I'm not welcoming you back as a servant, but as a son. Despite what the younger son had done, giving his dad the finger, the father welcomes him back with loving arms and kindness and rejoices. Friends, through Jesus, we can be restored to him. God loves you. Through Jesus, we can be restored to others. As I invite the band up, I want us to believe this. As we step on each other's toes, and church, we should be stepping on each other's toes. Uh, Why? Because if we're not, it probably means that our lives are too private and too hidden away. We're not getting close enough to each other. 
But as we offend each other, as we disappoint each other, let's have a bigger view of God's forgiveness. Church, we need to be realistic. We need to expect sin from ourselves and from others. But God's grace is more. God has forgiven us. Uh, in fact, he's, he's paid our debt. Uh, we deserve to die up on the cross. We're going to respond now and we're going to remind each other and celebrate what Jesus did for us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.